Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. Our guest today is Kevin Wheeler. Kevin is the founder and chairman of the Future of Talent Institute. He's also a globally known futurist, speaker, author, and consultant focused on the future of work, human resources, recruitment, and corporate education. Kevin has led HR recruitment and learning functions at Fortune 500 companies globally. He's a consultant to firms that are looking to develop leading-edge capabilities in the space. He's also an advisor to several high-tech recruiting startups and a lecturer at the University of San Francisco. Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. So our topic today is the future of HR. So we're currently going through some interesting times, right? COVID has accelerated a number of things, including the digital transformation of business and work, but it also has made a lot of people less fearful about leaving their work. And, and now we're starting to see right, some data around that, what people call the, the great resignation. And purpose and meaningful work seem to matter a lot more, uh, especially for this new generation of workers, right? So from your vantage point, like, what do you make of all these changes and, and what do you think that the new normal will be? There is no consensus, all right? And of course, nobody can actually predict the future, but it seems like if the trends hold true, that a significant percentage of workers are resisting going back to the office full-time. But there's also evidence that kind of points the opposite way. When I see the traffic locally has increased almost to pre-pandemic levels, and I drive by the parking lots of numerous companies, and they look pretty full to me. So you, you just kind of wonder what's actually happening out there. But I think in general, the young generation is definitely resisting going back to work. They are resigning in significant numbers. And people are wondering, what are they doing? How do they live it? You know, what are they doing for money? Uh, and I think a couple of things are going on. One, I think they're living off savings from pre-pandemic and also the payouts that came during the pandemic. Uh, but they're also changing their lifestyle. Uh, that they're moving to rural areas, they're downsizing from what they were, the way they were living before. So I kind of call it right-sizing their lives to the income that they have or that they can generate. So I think we're gonna see a lot of changes at, in that generation. I think the Gen Xers, the 40-ish, early 50-ish type people, they're probably the ones that are going to go back to work at least several days a week, if not all the time. Uh, but even there, there's pressure, uh, certainly pressure. And as we keep having wave after wave of virus, it's continuing the pressure. So you know, the longer you do something, the more it becomes normal, right? So I think for a lot of people, obviously, 2020 was getting used to it all. And I, I really want to go back to the office. This year has kind of been it's not so bad working from home, you know, it's all right. I'm getting used to it. I, I'm adjusting my life and thinking and, and we'll see what 2022 brings, but it's, it's really kind of a, a flip of the coin right now as to whether people will mostly go back to work. The hybrid model, you know, I think that's even questionable if that's workable. You know, why not? Many companies are on completely virtual. Lots of companies have just said, we're no more offices, no more anything. We're just going to distribute our workforce. So we'll see where it goes, but it's a really fascinating time and the trends point toward big changes 
So the human resource function, right, which is the function that you're primarily concerned with, is like in the, in the midst of all of this, right? People, uh, business leaders looking for HR for guidance, right? So how effective do you think are, is the HR community in responding to these changes that we're seeing? Uh, it's, it's very mixed. I think generally not very well. Most of the traditional HR people were brought up in an era where, you know, everybody was a permanent employee. You worked a normal work shift. All the policies, all the benefits are crafted around that assumption. And suddenly a lot of the workforce is not permanent. It's gig workers and all sorts of part-time and other kinds of workers. You've got people that are moving to rural areas. Should they get paid the same as people that live in the urban areas? So you've got all these compensation issues. You've got how do we control people when they don't have a boss looking at them every day? What's the role of a manager? So I think HR has got a lot of thinking to do, but it's not just HR. It's HR working with leadership. And you know I think that's where some of the challenge comes in. So even if you were an innovative, creative thinking HR person, can you really influence the CEO and the team to go along with you? I think in some cases, there's just pushing pressure against each other. In some cases, it's more collaborative where the HR says, yeah, I agree with you, CEO, people should come back to work. And then you've got a few that are pushing back against it. So you've got a wide range, but in general, I would say HR has not figured out how to respond to this. You're in California, right? So you're in the midst of like where the right where the tech industry lives, right? Which I think is a is probably a prime example for like a, a talent driven industry, right? Where where people can and individual programmers can make outsized contributions, right? So, it's like if you step back beyond like the pandemic, right? What do you see um, HR leaders do to become more competitive when it comes to attracting talent? Given you know that compensation and benefits and all these other things are kind of like table stakes, right? So, so how can one differentiate? Well, I mean, I think it's easy to understand why people are leaving, all right? It's not that hard. They're leaving because they're not happy. They're not engaged. The work isn't meaningful. The bosses are too micromanaging or not allowing them to be creative or do the things that they think they should be able to do or want to do. So, I mean, you know, people don't leave just because they're, you know, decide they want to leave. There's, there's a motive for leaving. And and I don't think the motive is that hard to figure out. You talk to these people, you interview them. My boss is an ogre. I want to take, I want to learn more things. I want opportunities. They don't give them to me. So I think HR number one has to have different policies, much more flexible policies around how people can move around in the company. That They need a lot more learning and development opportunities for people and time to do the learning and the development. I think they need to really figure out how to deal with this overwork that's a big part of why people are leaving. You know, we feel like we're just being slaves and working 10 hours a day. It's all about writing more code or getting more work out the door. And so how do we change that? How do you make that less of a problem and make it authentic? Because a lot of people say, oh, you don't have to do it, but then your performance review comes and, well, you didn't complete your goals or whatever. So, you know, it's a two-phase sort of standard in many organizations. Uh, they tell you one thing, but the actual practice is the other thing. It's a real challenge. So you've got to you've got to get rid of that. You've got to become authentic. I think you've got to tell people the reality of what's going on. Very big tendency in companies to to not share, you know, what senior leadership knows. I've said, and I can't how many meetings I've sat in where this is just for you to know, but don't tell your people, right? Which is absolutely the worst thing you can possibly do. Uh, yeah, and it, it never it, works either, right? It, it's it never works. They always find out, right? I don't think it's that hard for HR to do this. But again, it's back to that thing. Will senior leadership support it? 
you know, can they get those people to understand that all these people are leaving because of these things? And it's not salary and it's not more benefits and it's not more food in the cafeteria and all the things that were going on pre-pandemic, which were, I think, cosmetic things, right? You know, we have a 24-hour fitness gym. We have a dentist on site. Yeah, that's just so I never have to go home, right? <laughs> I can even work more now because, you know, you've got everything I need right here. So it kind of backfires in a way, uh, I think, big time. And people are just fed up. I think they're disgruntled. They're frustrated, especially the younger generation. It's not what, not what I signed up for, I hear them say. They told me I would have all my job description was great. I can do this and do this. And I come in here and the reality is I can't do anything. Right. Just, so, so, I mean, it's not, not a mystery. Uh, I think it's common sense listening to what people are saying and then making those changes as much as you possibly can. I fully agree with you, right? And, and I think my view is that actually the actual design of the work in most cases Right, it's, it's probably a root cause of like you know why why people don't want to stay. There are jobs, the purpose is not clear. There's no autonomy, and, and you know people feel like cogs in a wheel. Do you see companies investing in rebuilding those capabilities, or no? I don't. I mean, I think most most HR people are still administrators. Right? That's really what they are. All right, maybe with lots of extra things attached to it, but at the core, it's policy. You know following the rules and so forth, doing what you're supposed to do, hiring round people for round holes, that kind of thing, right? I think we need a lot more disruptive people in HR. And many companies have already started hiring non-HR professionals into HR, marketing people and other people into the HR group, maybe just in part for that purpose. But you know, organizational design is, uh, and work design is a huge topic for the future, I think. I mean, I've my graduate work is all in organizational development and design, and it's not practiced anywhere hardly. You know, people are, don't really understand what that means except how to juggle the org chart. So it's really, I think, about you know, who should be a permanent worker? Who should be a gig worker? What kind of work do we want to get done by what kind of person? Uh, instead of this assumption that all work needs to be done by full-time, eight to five people all the time, you know, we really haven't sat down and thought through the work we need to get done and the right kind of skill sets to do that work and whether that's a permanent ongoing continuous thing or whether it's something that we can do as needed when we need it with you know without having permanent employees so it's really kind of rethinking how org organizations work i think most of them need to be smaller obviously ai and automation are playing a huge part in what's going on and will continue to so we can do more with fewer people. And then the question is, what do we do with the people that we no longer need? Can we retrain them? Can we put them in different roles? Can we stop hiring and start redeploying the ones we have into other places so that the automation is more less disruptive? So lots of things in HR just isn't there. They're not really tackling those questions, I don't think. It's got to be integrated with what's going on in the manufacturing side. It's got to be integrated with what's going on in the financial side. And I think the functional silos are really a really bad thing. We need more, a lot more cross-functional teams that really are working together and sharing what they're doing. We just need a lot more people working with each other and integrating with each other and knowing what the left hand is doing so they can support it. But I don't think we have that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I mean, I come like out of the lean manufacturing world, right? And I feel like 
there, there was also this whole counterintuitive idea. It used to be, well, let's make the largest batch possible, and then, you know, we can allocate all the fixed costs. And so the idea of like one piece flow was really very counterintuitive. And people said, you know, this can't be right financially successful. And I feel like the same is true if you look at organizational models, right, where, where companies think it's like, you know, if we organize things in global functions and control everything centrally, right, whether it's quality or HR or any kind of support function, that would be the most effective solution. And the reality is it's probably, in many cases, the worst solution, right, because you end up with overburdened control structures that really oftentimes get in the way of doing the work, right? So I think... Companies like Hire, I think, are showing interesting examples for organizing people in small mini enterprises, right? And, and you know, instead of like having one monolithic organization, right, you have like 10,000 little profit centers that are all collaborating and working and competing with each other. And, and I think my sense is we're probably going to see more of those models emerging. W would you agree? Totally agree. I think we're going to see more. I call it Charles Handy, if you're familiar with Charles Handy and his uh, Cloverleaf model, where you've got a small core of central people who sort of coordinate all these projects that are going on outside. And those projects or activities going on might be made up of, it will be made up of a combination of gig workers and permanent workers and consultants and contractors. So it's really a coordination job and an analysis job using the data and understand what's going on uh, and how do we do things in a better way to get the results we want. But I, I think it's just so embryonic right now. I don't think most organizations are willing to embrace that model. A few, the small ones are, but if you take a huge, you know, a huge company and it's just, uh, even as an HR person myself, if somebody told me to do that, I would say, oh my God, how do I do this, right? It's, it's not something there's any practice to look at, right? So it's, it's all experimental. So it's really frightening and it's going to take people with really, you know, lots of guts <laughs> and, and a lot of intelligence to figure it out and go do it. But yeah, you can do it in a small company. They're doing it big time and startups are doing it uh, and it works. It's a great model. I think it will be the model for the future. And as industrial manufacturing becomes more automated, which is inevitable, we're going to need fewer and fewer workers. And I think companies like Amazon, that you know, even though they're hiring tens of thousands of workers, especially during the holiday season, I think the robotics that they're developing right now are going to replace almost all those people within five years, maybe. You're going to see no more need to do that in five years. So they, they need to be thinking about how they're going to deal with that issue, right? But automation is a big factor that I don't think we're paying enough attention to. And it's not just automation and manufacturing. It's in recruiting. It's in human resources. It's in finance. It's pretty much everywhere, which means you need fewer people. My experience, like in the past, HR has been relatively light when it comes to technology, right? You might have an applicant tracking system and a payroll system, right? But that's kind of like where it ends, right? What do you see, so I guess, the future when it comes to HR using technology? There's technology now to let me find people automatically. It's technology to screen and assess people, at least augmented. I won't say completely automated, but heavily augmented. There's candidate relationship management systems that, again, are, are AI-empowered. All the administrative work can be done in an automated way. Even things like onboarding employees, has especially accelerated by the pandemic, is virtual. And the data analysis is maybe the weakest part, but the tools are, are coming now to analyze data that they've got. If we take learning and development, learning is virtually completely moved to the cloud. It can be coaching, it can be, and that can be virtual. It can be done with avatars, 
and, uh, and other virtual worlds, so to speak. Those are the two big areas of HR, right? The learning and development and recruiting. Those are highly automatable. And I would say maybe 10% of companies have even approached 50% of that. It's there. The technology is there. Uh, there are issues around integration, this issue around recruiting and learning, not having the IT staff competent to develop and integrate these tools. But that's a issue. Again, that's back to OD. We need to plan to hire Instead of hiring another HR generalist, let's hire a data analyst or an IT person. It's all the technologies there. Probably also one area where I think this technology would also help is just providing more data and insights to the HR function, right? And I know you've written about it, and I have an opinion on that too, about like the uselessness of many of the metrics that are being used in the HR function, right? They're almost all useful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're all what I call level one or rear view mirror metrics, right? This is what happened last week, last month, last quarter. I don't really care. I'm more concerned about what's going to happen next quarter, next month. We have tons of data. HR has, is swimming in data from applicant tracking systems, from their career sites, from the internal communication systems of the company, but they pretty much don't have access to it. They don't know how to access it. And that goes back to not having data scientists and data analytics that they can actually use. I don't expect... Uh, even for me, I can't, I can't analyze that data. I have no clue how to analyze the data, but I know it can be analyzed and I've worked with people that know how to do that. So it's about how do we get those people to work in our function and help us use that data in intelligent ways? How do we develop predictive analytics? You know, the question I asked earlier about what kinds of people do we need to do what jobs? Well, the only real way we can figure that out is to analyze data to look at what, what has been done in the past and what kinds of people did it best. It's not difficult, but it requires hiring the right people, having the right goals and objectives, understanding what you want for an outcome. And I think that's really the, the lack of, we don't have, we don't know what we want. You know, it's like, if I, when I see it, I'll know it, but I can't tell you what it is I want, right? And I think HR really needs to spend more time defining what do you really want? What kind of a goal do you want? What outputs do you really want to see out? And then how do we get the data to help us achieve this? That's really the ultimate goal. Yeah. You know, it's just such a different concept of HR, right? Because if you think about how people currently are being trained and what the focus of the role is, it's around doing investigation and, you know, adherence to labor laws and, 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 and all those fun things. And they're very important, right, from a compliance perspective. Yeah. But, but there's nothing around how do we build new capabilities as a business? If talent is the strategic resource, right, how do we make sure that we get more than our fair share of that talent? And uh, I think you're absolutely spot on. The only ones that have really done anything there are primarily Google, which sort of pioneered doing some of this research. I'm not sure they're still doing it, but they were under when Laszlo Bach was there. You know, I think Microsoft has done some of this. Unilever has done some. There are organizations that are definitely starting to pioneer the way to tap into data, to hire the right people to analyze this data. But it's very, very early stage and only a few of the big, big companies. Yeah, and it's, I think the, the also probably an easy way to gauge right how important HI is is to look at the amount of investment right that that's being made to scale up and build up the function right. And my experience is you know there's not a whole lot going on. It's rare that you have HR as a client that says we get some funding here to fix some things right. Yeah, that's kind of unusual. You know as well as I do, being consultants, how difficult it is for the HR groups to to get any budget. <laughs> We'd yeah. love to hire you to help us, but we don't have any money, right? Yeah. 
you go to a manufacturing or a marketing group and it's not even an issue, right? Can you start Monday? <laughs> you know, it's a totally different world. And it's really sad. But again, it goes back, I think, to the level of leadership and business acumen that HR possesses. And, you know, I think they haven't thought like business people think. Maybe in a way that's good, but it's hasn't done them any favors when it comes to getting money or getting resources or or even changing opinion. You know, one of my big things is how can you become more influential? How can you influence people better? You know, those are real skills that HR doesn't seem to have. And that they're more used to saying, what do you want me to do? And then saying, yes, sir, than they are pushing back or influencing or, or driving the agenda. But at the same time, I think, especially right now, it just feels like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this with the work design angle, right? So who's going to do it? Because managers are not trained to do that, right? And, and they're oftentimes just reacting to the pressure ahead of them to say, you know, I got to get this work done. I got to find a warm body to do that. HR is not going to be able to do it because right, they gave up on, on building those capabilities in-house a long time ago. Uh, and so it just feels like you know, a lot of these things end up in the white space, right? And, and so, you know, handled administratively, but we're not really tapping into the full transformational potential that we could realize. Right? I totally agree. And, you know, you think, where is that going to come from? I think it's going to come from where we least expect it, most likely. You know, I don't know whether it's going to be from, you know, engineering or whether it's going to be come from data analysts. Uh, but, you know, I think eventually we will, something will emerge, but I can't predict right now where that's going to come from. But I agree with you. I think very rare HL organizations that have anybody capable of doing that. There are probably a few, but not very many. There's a few CEOs that are also the HR person in effect, and they're kind of trying to drive that agenda forward, but it's a struggle. You look at Zappos, which was a great example of trying to introduce holacracy, which was a really good experiment. It was a good attempt, a really innovative way to look at how things work. And so these ideas need a champion and then they need somebody to execute. You know, they need a, an operations person underneath there to make it happen. Yeah. And probably also the stomach for risk-taking and experimentation, right? Because there's no template, right? You're going to have to figure out something that works for that specific company and that specific culture. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. I mean, that's inevitable. But the mistakes are how you learn, you know? The old saying, you only learn through your mistakes. You never learn anything through your successes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it takes a CEO willing to go with that risk to say, let's try some different things. Let's see what works. Let's try it in this division or this section of the company and see if it works. And again, there aren't very many willing to do that because you know we've really become caught up in that shareholder quarterly profit thing, which is a real challenge for companies to get out of. And uh, again, I see a few a few smaller companies are refusing to re do quarterly reports. Yeah, uh, they're they're pushing back against that. They're saying we'll we'll give you one twice a year. We'll update you. And of course, private companies, which have been very successful actually, have never had to do that, right? So you go to private companies and they seem to do extremely well relative to the public companies in many cases. Now, if you're like a farmer and you plant carrots or potatoes and you pull them out every two weeks to see if they've grown, right? I mean, it's probably not going to lead to anything spectacular, right? So I think things take yeah. time and, and don't seem to work in these quarterly reporting cycles that financial analysts expect, right? Those timeframes are totally arbitrary, totally artificial, and, and, and really meaningless, right? Because, you know, three years later, you might have the most fantastic product in the world. Not going to happen if you have to check your profits every quarter. Now, on the software development side, right, people have discovered Agile and Agile ways of working, right, and used that 
I think increasingly as the operating model to build things, right? When the future is unclear. Do you see kind of like Agile making any inroads on, on the HR side? There's all these articles about Agile HR and Agile recruiting. It's just another way to say faster. Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily better or more thoughtful. And that's even true in the software world. You know, a lot of the Agile software development is just write more code faster, which has led to burnout. It hasn't necessarily led to higher quality coding or better coding. So, you know, I think the Agile school is, uh, is facing a lot of challenges right now. The concept was legit, but it's like so many of these, I guess I call them semi-fads or whatever, you soon find out they're Achilles heels. Supply chain on demand has led to where we are right now in terms of our lack of, of stuff, right? Because the supply chain can't deal with it. So that's the Achilles heel. Uh, it only works when everything, every gear is meshed together perfectly, right? Agile only works when you've got thoughtful people who are focused on quality and figuring out better ways to do things, not just faster ways to do things, right? So how can we learn faster? Well, you know, I talk to a lot of education experts and you don't speed up learning. Learning takes a certain amount of time. I can't teach you French in a a day, not possible, okay? Or a week or a month even. And I think the same goes for a lot of other things in the agile world. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a function of, you know, courage and resources, right? But I think also just the overall mindset. I just feel like in many large organizations, there's this glacial pace, right? That makes it very difficult to compete with very fast, agile organizations that can, you know, turn on a dime, right? And then, especially in today's world where things really change every 5, 10, 15 days or, or, or minutes, right? I think it's important to have the responsiveness. And I think in large organizations, it just doesn't happen, right? There are too many layers in the hierarchy. There's too many approvals that need to be thought. And you know, somewhere along those like 18 months journey to build this consensus, right? Something happens like a merger or a senior leadership change or whatever, right? Then you start from scratch again, right? You walk the square, right? And, and you never stop walking, right? You constantly align the stakeholders, right? That's um, oh, absolutely. And, and it's, uh, and it's another reason why small companies are innovative and creative and, and can respond to things quickly, but the big ones really are almost paralyzed. And I mean, that was okay when you're just producing stuff. Yeah. It's exactly designed to do what it was designed to do, which is produced a high volume of stuff in a high quality, you know, completely repetitive way. Mm-hmm. And if you're making cars or you're making, you know, refrigerators or whatever it is, it's exactly what you want. But like I said, that's going to be all automated. And so now we need innovation and creativity and, and so forth, which is we really struggle to figure out how do we, uh, how do you best organize for that? Listen, Kevin, I appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and share your thoughts. And it was uh, great to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, until next time. Yeah, until next time. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Kevin Wheeler. One, our attitudes towards what we expect from work have changed, and many of these changes are likely to become permanent. And so organizations are well advised to listen to their employees and respond to those changed expectations. Second, automation will fundamentally transform the workplace. More and more of the routine production work is already automated, and now we're starting to realize that we cannot use the same mindset that we use to organize production work to organize creative work and knowledge work. And as we are experimenting with new ways of working, that will create both an opportunity and a huge challenge for the HR function to support that experimentation. 
And it will also likely require new disruptive leadership within the HR function. And lastly, I very much agree with this point that we should view employees as investors who invest their time, skills, and energy into the organization and expect a return. If they don't get that return, they will leave. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please also check out the other instances of the Work Matters podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.